This is the Education Exchange. I am Paul Peterson, Senior Editor of Education Next. Thank you for joining me. Charter schools provide opportunities for experimentation. An outstanding example is the Harlem Children's Zone, a group of charter schools in New York City. Jeffrey Canada, its leader, the Harlem Children's Zone leader, envisioned charter schools achieving the highest level of excellence provided they were backed by a network of social services designed to address the numerous health, nutritional, safety, and other needs of children attending schools at the heart of a major metropolitan area. The Harlem Children's Zone proved so successful, it has inspired a national movement to bring the community school concept to public schools more generally. Recently, community schools were embraced by the Biden administration as a powerful tool of innovation to enhance student learning. I'm pleased to have with me on the Education Exchange today, Jane Quinn, the former director of the National Center for Community Schools and co-author of a report entitled The Community Schools Revolution. Thank you, Jane, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Jane, what do you mean by community schools, and what do you mean by revolution? What is the concept? The concept is that community schools is a strategy for organizing school and community resources around student success. So it's a results-oriented strategy that recognizes that many young people who are students in our schools do not have the adequate support that they need, including things like health, mental health, after school programs, summer camps, enrichment opportunities. Um, and so the community school strategy sees schools working in partnership with resources in their community. Those resources are brought into the school on a strategic basis, on the basis of a comprehensive needs and assets assessment. And why do you use the word revolution? Is this happening at scale in a way it never has before? Yes, that's absolutely right. Um, I, I want to attribute the word revolution to our colleague in Cincinnati, Darlene Kamine, who said, you know, I think we're in the midst of a quiet revolution because she knows, as I know, that thousands of schools across the country over the last 30 years have adopted this strategy. And I had the privilege really of funding some of this early work when I was at the Wallace Foundation and then building the capacity of schools and partners in my role as director of the National Center for Community Schools. I dare say that there's nobody in the country who has visited more community schools than I have because I was traveling all over the country and the National Center, our work and in capacity building really meant that I and my staff went on site in communities across the country to help them implement this strategy. We were their coaches and, um, and, and their guides to how to do it. And my own involvement in the work really was based on the practice of the Children's Aid Society in New York City. You mentioned the Harlem Children's Zone. They're friends of ours. Um, 
we we both did a lot of work in Harlem and Children's Aid worked in other communities. And I think that the fact that Children's Aid was operating between 20 and 22 of these schools in partnership with the New York City Department of Education, that over the years that gave us great credibility uh, across the rest of the country. People wanted often to come and see our work in New York and kind of kick the tires. And then they wanted to adapt this broad strategy to their own work. So the revolution to me is that parents have requested the kinds of supports and services that are available in community schools. That often is the spark that leads to districts and their partners adopting this strategy. And in our book, what we tr have tried to do is to show that this strategy is both doable and worth doing. So you started in New York City. It sounds uh, like that was a key beginning point. So how, how did that happen in, in New York City? You mentioned uh, it was important to have the nonprofit group uh, Children's Aid uh, there on the ground, uh, active in this area. But now there was an, an explicit community schools program in New York City. So how did that come into being? Right. So there, there are two two origin stories, and I'll, I can tell them both. The children's aid work started in the late 1980s when the New York City public schools were building new schools up in Washington Heights in Northern Manhattan. And they got into a conversation with Children's Aid because Children's Aid was thinking of building some new community centers, some settlement houses up in the same neighborhood. This was a neighborhood that had seen dramatic changes through the migration, particularly of, of people from the Dominican Republic. So the demographics in the neighborhood changed there was a need for new public schools and there was a need for new support services. And in the late 1980s, Children's Aid and the then Board of Education engaged in conversations about what if we did something different? What if we joined forces and built schools to be community schools, to be what Joy Dreyfus a researcher who worked on this in the early days, what she called the settlement house in the school. So Children's Aid and the New York City Board of Education opened their first joint community school in 1992 in Washington Heights. And that school is still a community school. The Children's Aid model became, we call it a lead agency model where children, and there are other models of community schools, but the lead agency model was adopted by the de Blasio administration in 2008 in New York City, based partly on the success of the children's aid model. And it became an initiative of the city working closely with its then Department of Education. Right now, the New York City Community Schools Initiative has 412 schools, community schools, out of the 1,800 in New York City that are New York City public schools. So 
that's a level of scale that is pretty good. And the focus has been on working in the highest need schools, the high poverty schools in New York City, of which we have plenty. Um, and it the strategy really broadly is about aligning public and private resources around the needs of students and families in these high poverty schools. Well, it sounds like a wonderful model to me, but it's really sometimes very difficult to get big organizations to work with one another. And the New York City school systems is a very big organization and the nonprofits in New York City are very big as well. So both sides of this coin <clears throat> don't automatically you know, fit together so neatly all the time. So how, how do you get complex organizations to you know, cooperate in this space? That's, you're right on about that. It, it, collaborate, you know, the word labor is embedded in the word collaboration. And we can't forget that, right? This is hard work. However, I think that many of the nonprofits, I would say New York is a good example of the nonprofits being invited into the New York City public schools and at least 70 of them have agreed to be lead agencies in these 412 schools. And we have seen this happen around the country. Cincinnati, I mentioned earlier, um, is an example of a place that has completely gone to scale with community schools over a 20 year period. This is a long-term strategy. New York has been going to scale in a more targeted way saying maybe not all schools will become community schools, but over 400 of them are working in this more comprehensive and integrated way. And each of the schools that, uh, that are community schools in New York City is linked with a nonprofit partner that has been selected by the school. And that's important, right? This is not a top-down model. This is a democratic model where there's a lot of voice and choice on the part of people at the school. Well, it sounds like the principal is key to the success of this because the principal has got to be the figure that connects the school to the community and the community resources. Would you agree with that? I would totally agree with that. And I would say that the principal um, is also the instructional leader in the building. And so it is really important that the principal working with a community school director or community school coordinator who is employed by the lead agency, that they work closely together, not just to integrate the health services and with the mental health services, but to integrate all of these additional supports and services with the core instructional program. Another element to this that strikes me as terribly important is the mentoring. Yeah, that you've got each child in the school if you're going to if you're going to make use of these resources you got to make these resources available to specific children and how do you find out what a particular child needs what are their nutritional needs medical yes. needs emotional needs and and do you, do you need somebody who's a specific mentor for for the, each of the children in the school in order to make this work 
I think you, you've hit on something so important that somehow we keep forgetting how important relationships are in the school and um, how important they are in the community as well. And the community schools work really hard to understand the needs in the aggregate, but also the needs of individual children. So in New York City, and I would say across the country, I would say across the country, most schools have two big planning tables. One is in New York, it's called the school leadership team. It's where the school staff and their partners create the, the school's comprehensive education plan. They create it, they monitor it, and it is about school improvement. The other table in New York City, it's called the Pupil Personnel Committee, but it's got lots of different names in different places. It is the table where the partners and school staff discuss the needs of individual children. Teachers are key informants to that process. Parents are key informants to that process. And it is where the needs of individual children, particularly children who are underachieving, get a careful both diagnosis and the creation of an individualized student success plan. So I think your question is really right on about um, how do we make sure we are getting the right supports and services to the right students at the right time. It all sounds like a great idea and a great implementation plan, but do we have any evidence that it works? What does, is there any research that suggests that what's been done in New York City or Cincinnati or elsewhere actually has impact that uh, those who are promoting community schools would like to see? The evidence has been growing over the last 25 years. And I will talk about two really important things that have happened in the last seven or eight years. In 2017, two policy organizations, the Learning Policy Institute in California and the National Education Policy Center in Colorado, they worked together, they collaborated to look at 143 evaluations of community schools. And they issued a landmark study saying that, and this is, I'm gonna do shorthand here, but that their study is really worth looking at because of its rigor and its comprehensiveness. They said that there is evidence in those 143 evaluations that meets all four levels of evidence under the Every Student Succeeds Act. This is big news because it means that federal funds can be spent on community schools. Now they say these community schools that are getting these results are well implemented. So we know that quality matters. And this is one of the reasons we wrote our book because we believe the community schools field has learned a tremendous amount over the last really 30 years um, that is available to the rest of the schools in the country to examine and learn from. The second study that I would tell you about happened right here in New York City. The Community Schools Initiative in New York City, which is now the largest in the country, 
has really powerful evidence from a rigorous evaluation conducted by the Rand Corporation. And the findings were across the board about higher um, graduation rates, higher rates of credit accumulation, higher uh, passing rates. So academically, these schools are doing better compared to demographically matched New York City public schools that are not community schools. We also saw dramatic reductions in chronic absence, meaning that group of students who are missing 10% or more uh, during of school during the school year. So we have the Learning Policy Institute study and the RAND study that we, we drew on heavily for the evidence. And we have a whole section in our book about do community schools work? And the answer is they work when they are well implemented. They're like anything else, right? So we have to pay attention to quality. We have to pay attention to capacity building. So now the Biden administration has embraced the community school concept, but can you tell me how that came to be? I can tell you how that came to be. Um, it starts with Steny Hoyer. Steny Hoyer, when he was the House Majority Leader, called Joy Dreyfus, who wrote the book Full Service Schools back in 1994. He called her up and he said, I want to visit one of these schools. Can you take me to one of them? And he came to, I hosted the visit. He came to a children's aid community school. He came to our, you know, our prototype school. And he spent a couple of hours in the school. And at the end of the visit, he said, I'm persuaded. He said he saw high quality teaching and learning going on. He saw that the children looked healthy and happy. The children in this middle school looked happy. And he said, <laughs> he that's, said to me, yeah, that's an event all by itself. It, it totally is. Um, they're my favorite age group. You know, I, I love those young adolescents. But he said, um, you know, Jane, I get this. I get this. Uh, I, but I don't see why you're doing this in a middle class neighborhood. And I said to myself, oh, we got him, you know? So I said, why do you think this is a middle-class neighborhood? He said, well, the kids are well-dressed. They look healthy. They look happy. And I said, yes, that's because their basic needs are being met every single day. And he went back and put $5 million into the federal budget for full-service community schools. Um, I forget what year that was. It was around 2000. And that program has now expanded under the leadership of the Biden administration because of the landmark 2017 study done by uh, the Learning Policy Institute and the National Education Policy Center. So this is not a new strategy. In fact, this is an old strategy that John Dewey and Jane Addams talked about during the progressive era. There's no, it does guy. sound very much like John Dewey. It's yeah, it is. John like, Dewey at his best, you know, and and John Dewey at his most practical. Um, you and I both have a connection to the University of Chicago. I am a graduate of their School of Social Work, and I know you are a graduate there as well. So oh, we you've done your homework. Yes. Uh, no, I learned about the settlement houses at the University of Chicago. I learned all about Jane Addams, and I learned all right, about right. Dewey in that setting yeah right right so so this is not a new idea but um I, the biden administration be, was persuaded by the evidence 
They were persuaded by the evidence and they said, we're going to take this little $5 million that Stenio, I mean, it's not little, right? It's, I'm grateful for it, but it was um, a step in the right direction. And right now there is a federal competition going on. People are applying for full service community schools grants. And there is now $73 million in the federal budget. So to me, another step in the right direction. Well, you know, $73 million is, is not uh, minuscule, but, you know, education is a, a, a nearly a trillion dollar business. Maybe now it is a trillion dollar business. So it's really a drop in the buckets. And, and this, this is not inexpensive. This is a very, inex, you know, a quite expensive intervention. So how are the, you know, it's going to take a lot more resources than that in order to really bring this to scale. So is this an affordable uh, policy? Yeah, this is very affordable because we're not just talking about Title I dollars. We're not just talking about education dollars. Children's Aid is a good example of an organization that schools should want to partner with because Children's Aid is licensed in the state of New York to bill Medicaid for mental health and health services. Schools cannot tap into, med generally cannot tap into Medicaid on their own. So this is a strategy for braiding together a variety of funding sources, relying not just on education dollars. And I would argue, and there are three social return on investment studies in the community schools field that prove my point, that when you are working in this more planful, collaborative and comprehensive way, you get better results and you are avoiding duplication of services. And a good example of this is that when children are referred out to a mental health organization for mental health services, first of all, they have to wait a long time and that has only increased under COVID, right? We're all reading the same literature. Anytime I want to see the doctor now, I have to line up the, week, the month before. That's right. That's the world we live in. And so when we do more of the braiding at the top, so I was going to say that the re when the mental health services are moved into the schools, it becomes much more cost effective because the students are there, the mental health clinicians are there. There generally is not a waiting list. And there, the, the no-show rate decreases exponentially. So I believe that the community school strategy, and we have a whole chapter in our book on how do you pay for this? So we anticipate that question. And, you know, I spent 18 years fielding questions on community schools, and that was the number one question. And, yeah, and it should no, be. It should be. But So I would respectfully disagree with you. I don't think this is an expensive model. I think it's actually kind of a brilliant model because it is about making better use of existing resources. And it is about using like the full service community schools money to pay for the coordination. Well, tell me a little bit about, about Cincinnati. You mentioned Cincinnati a couple of times. Yeah. And I know maybe you're not a specialist on Cincinnati, but why that city? Why has Cincinnati embraced right. this idea and brought it to scale? What's, right. what's, the, what, what's their 
What's what happened in Cincinnati? What happened in Cincinnati, which has happened in a lot of places, but more dramatically, I would say in Cincinnati, is that the Cincinnati public schools were the subject of a state Supreme Court case about 25 years ago. And the the terrible condition of the Cincinnati public schools, both the physical infrastructure and what was going on in the schools was um, the subject of this lawsuit. And when the state allocated new resources to the Cincinnati public schools, people in the community rose up and said, we want to have a voice in what happens here. And I will hand it to two people. I, I actually do know a lot about Cincinnati. I was one of their coaches. Um, but I've also walked the journey with them. John Gilligan, the former governor of Ohio, when he completed his term of service as governor, he moved back to Cincinnati. He ran for the school board. And he and a family court judge named Darlene Kamine, I mentioned her earlier, they provided leadership around the Cincinnati, what they call the community learning centers. You know, in Ohio, charter schools are called community schools. So it's all mixed up. So they, they said, we're not talking about that. We're talking about something else. So we're gonna call them community learning centers. The former governor and the former family court judge, I, I believe that the what happened in Cincinnati would not have happened without them. The leadership of the school district bought into what was going on and said, yes, we wanna do this, but we need your help bringing the community into our schools. 20 years later, every school in Cincinnati is a community learning center and they are paired up with community resources and the community resources, their sustainability model is that the community resources are bringing their own human and financial resources into alignment with the schools. So there's a lot to learn from Cincinnati. In our book, we have six case studies of communities that have gone to scale with the community school strategy. Albuquerque, Cincinnati, Los Angeles, New York City, Oakland, and the surprise hit, the state of Florida. So I was going to ask you about Florida. Let's yeah, let's, please do. So why is because you know anything in New York City is not very popular in Florida and vice versa. So how can this cross party lines? Yes, this can cross party lines, and that's one of the reasons why we included Florida in our book um, because their Republican state legislature has supported what they call community partnership schools. This is a model that was created by the Children's Home Society of Florida, a statewide child welfare organization, and the University of Central Florida. And these two partners went to the state legislature and said, look at the, look at the statistics in our schools. We need to do something different. We need to bring partners into the schools and they have made a 25 year commitment to this work. That is another lesson to be learned, right? That this is not a short-term strategy. So the state of Florida is kind of my favorite because it's statewide. 
they have these unexpected partners and they have basically gotten married, right? They're not dating anymore. They got married. They signed a 25-year commitment on the part of the university and several of the other partners. So well, that's actually a concern of mine is that when this is embraced by one um, administration or one group that's in power at a moment in time, will the will this survive political change? So in New York, you had the de Blasio administration, which had followed the Bloomberg administration. Now you have the Adams administration. Is community schools surviving all these transitions in, in New York City? It is surviving these transitions in part because there is really substantial parental support and community support. The public stance of the Adams and Banks administration is that they are building on what's working. That in the changes that they're making, they're addressing things that are not working. So they are supporting the community schools initiative. And in fact, under the Adams Banks administration, they have actually added a number of community schools to the cohort. And so I would say that their support is different from what it was in the de Blasio administration, but it is definitely there. And there is, um, I mean, we're seeing a lot of leadership also coming from the, the very groups that you talked about earlier, Paul, the groups, the nonprofit groups, they have an advocacy alliance called the Alliance for Community Schools Excellence and under the under the leadership of Terrence Winston. And so there is an organized group that is bringing community support into the public school system. But you're right to worry about that. I've, I've watched some of these initiatives die and I have watched some of them um, survive and grow because when people come in and a new administration wants to build on what's working, they build on things like this. So how about the teachers union? Are they supportive of this or do they see this as getting in to business that's up to, you know, the teacher to decide, not for outside groups to come in and, and dictate? Well, both the, the National Education Association and the American Federation of Teachers have issued very vocal support for the community school strategy. And in fact, I'm proud to say that we have about 25 blurbs from leaders in the field, um, people who, who gave advanced praise for our book, and both Becky Pringle, head of the NEA, and Randy Weingarten, head of the AFT, um, gave us support for our book. But more importantly than that, they are vocal supporters of this strategy. I think teachers welcome strategic partnerships with the community because it helps, it frees them to do their job as instructors and as uh, people who are in relationship with students. So uh, this is all uh, terribly fascinating, but how do you see the future in 10 years from now, where will we be? You call this a revolution. A revolution I, should leave a legacy after 10 years. So, yes. so tell me what the story is 10 years out. Right. Well, that's chapter 11. The, the, the 11th and final chapter of our book is about looking toward the future. 
we see the future of community schools being optimistic. Um, we think that the field needs to continue producing the kind of evidence that has spurred the growth that we've seen over the last few years. We think that there are several um, issues that have been underattended to. I mean, this is long-term work, right? We think that the curriculum in community schools could do a lot more to connect young people to doing active work in their local communities as problem solvers. So it's called community-based learning. We think community schools are a great vehicle for that. We think that the pre-service and in-service education of teachers, principals, social workers, and nurses, and other allied um, helping professions needs to change because people need to learn how to collaborate and how to respect one another's areas of expertise. We're very proud of the fact that the five authors of our book come from five different disciplines. We make that point in the beginning, right? That we have learned from each other. I'm from social work. Lisa is from education. Marty is from law. David Goodman is from journalism. And Ira Harkavy is from higher education. And, and we think that that needs to be that all of these professions have an opportunity and a need, a need to learn how to work together in this more comprehensive and integrated way. Well, Jane, thank you very much for sharing your enthusiasm for the community schools idea and for letting our audience know about the community school revolution that you have identified with your co-authors. So thank you very much for joining me on the Education Exchange. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I have been speaking with Jane Quinn, the former director of the National Center for Community Schools and co-author of a new report entitled The Community Schools Revolution. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. We release a new podcast on the Education Next website every Monday at noon Eastern time.